Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. On Saturday, August 26th, the United States celebrated the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Tens of thousands gathered at that very same spot where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. That speech occurred on August 28, 1963. 60 years ago, Dr. King urged us to struggle against the triple evils of racism, poverty, and bigotry. Today, racism is still with us. Poverty is still with us. And now, gun violence has come for our places of worship, our schools, and our shopping centers. That was Yolanda Renee King, youth activist, and Dr. King's 15-year-old granddaughter. The March on Washington was a push for racial and social equity, but it also emphasized economic equity. The march was for jobs and freedom. Even the iconic I Have a Dream speech says the following. The Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. A young activist named John Lewis, who would later become Congressman John Lewis, emphasized the need for economic change at that 1963 march. We march today for jobs and freedom, but we have nothing to be proud of, for hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, for they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, they're sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi, water in the field working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. On the same day that we celebrated the anniversary of the March on Washington, a racist gunman entered a store in Jacksonville, Florida, and murdered three Black people. It wasn't the first time that Jacksonville had seen racist violence. Back in August of 1960, the Klan organized an attack on Black demonstrators who were protesting for civil rights. The white attackers beat the demonstrators with axe handles, and that act of violence would later become known as Axe Handle Saturday. As racist violence continues in our country, so too does the fight for equity that was championed at the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're exploring the history of civil rights for Black Americans and how people can still create change. Later in the show, we hear from Professor Ruha Benjamin about how everyday decisions can move our world closer toward justice. But first, for more context around the civil rights movement and the history of white supremacist violence is Dr. Adrian Lentz-Smith. She's Associate Professor of History and African and African-American Studies at Duke University. She's also author of Freedom Struggles, African-Americans, and World War I. Professor, welcome to Disrupted. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Your work focuses on civil rights movements, 
but moves us beyond the very narrow time-bound understanding that many people have. Why do you argue that we need to look at the civil rights movement beyond that sort of core time in the 60s that we often think about to really understand these freedom struggles? Intellectually, we know that African-Americans have been struggling to make the meaning of American democracy broad and broad-reaching since before emancipation, right? So that pulling back the timeline on talking about the civil rights struggle is more reflective of the history, political, social, and cultural that Americans have lived. I think in terms of how we live as citizens in our current moment, there's something both weirdly, this is an irony, there's something inspiring but disempowering about thinking about the civil rights movement as something that happened magically that was given to us from on high, and then just the the book closed and the story ended and we're done with it. People were gathered in Washington, D.C. for the 60th commemoration of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And at the same time, three people were shot, killed, murdered in Florida, and it barely made a blip on the radar. But that juxtaposition of what it took in 1963 for people to come together to where we are in 2023, where we have become so desensitized to this violence, the ways in which political rhetoric can sanction in some ways that kind of violence. And from an historical perspective, that need to connect where we were in 1963 to where we are in 2023. I should also say that these two events happened the day before the 60th anniversary of W.B. Du Bois's passing. And so the nerd in me was like, what do we do with this? First, what was your reaction when you heard about this latest shooting, this commemoration, given the work that you do? Well, there are two, right? There's the initial just kind of terror and heartbreak of knowing not simply that people died in a mass shooting or in a you know multiple person shooting as they have day after day in this country, but also this the particular sense of terror and heartbreak that comes from the sense that it was targeted and deliberate and that anti-Black violence so recurrent in our present and past is ongoing. And just what a wretched coincidence, right? Just so telling um, of where we are. And I almost said who we are. I hope it's not actually telling of who we are. Your work talks about white supremacy in a very direct way. And the ways in which the ideology, the practice of white supremacy didn't go away because we got a Voting Rights Act that is now under attack even more, or didn't go away because we got a Civil Rights Act, but became ingrained not just in people, but in institutions. When you think about that arc of white supremacy, your work as an historian of seeing how that plays out, how do you think it shapes what we're dealing with now, whether it is efforts to not teach history in partnership with efforts to go back to an historical time where people did not have any rights or protections? I think that we have a deep misunderstanding of what white supremacy is and was, and what the civil rights movement is, was, and was about. And that misunderstanding serves a purpose to preserve racialized inequality 
and clusters of power outside of the hands of everyday people, right? The 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 unknowing, um, the deliberate re-narration or the stifling of certain expansions of our knowledge serve an anti-democratic and and anti-black purpose. You know, I think it's important. We say white supremacy, and first, you know, one historians say that because that is what Southern politicians named their political program in the 1890s when they decided to rewrite state constitutions. And as historians have said, white supremacy was both a social argument and a political program. That is to say that it was primarily about conserving resources in the hands of a small number of white elites, right? Not a lot of white people, a few white people, and that the social argument was a way to convince those white people who were not getting any of the pie or very small pieces of the pie that their identity as white men was more important or and also white women but was more important than their own well-being right when we kind of erase the nuances of that and we make white supremacy mostly that's something that happened you know in germany say and infected us a little bit we don't understand what we're working with in terms of our own political history and the legacies that we have to build on similarly we don't understand that the civil rights activists including martin luther king and all of the many many people who were ahead of him in their critique that civil rights activists were pushing for rechanging the economic structures the distributions, it wasn't simply about letting little kids go to school with other little kids. That was the beginning of something. It wasn't about the vote as an end in and of itself. It was about the vote as a tool to remake a society in which jobs and freedom were linked, in which economic justice and other forms of justice were part of how we talked about how everyone was doing. In the days after the shooting in Jacksonville, you know, local community leaders held a vigil and the current governor of Florida, who is also running for president of the United States Republican nomination, came to that vigil and was booed by some people who said, how dare you come to this sacred space? Because that's what it really was, given his involvement in trying to promote policies that really change our ability to understand is what you said, the nuance and context of history. Do you see a link between those kinds of policies and that narrative or that retelling, re-understanding and imagining of history? Or do you think that some of these claims are overblown, that, you know, we shouldn't make the link between attacks on education and the legacies of white supremacy in a more direct way? Of course we have to make the links, right? The the attacks on education are are basically advocating for white supremacist education, period. Right. They're saying that knowing about other things, about having a sense of how the black freedom struggle and other freedom struggles have unfolded isn't part of the story of America. Right. That kind of erasure, that kind of delegitimizing, that kind of invalidating has effects on how people view each other, not just what they know and how they're able to think about their present, but who they see as being like worthy of being heard, worthy of being known. And that carries, right? The debasing of life in a certain way has residual effects on the debasing of life in other 
ways. There's a quote when I wrote about a a lynching in the early part of the 20th century in Memphis, Tennessee, and a white commentator wrote, in Memphis, human life is cheaper than beefsteak. And they meant all, I mean, this was in the days before inflation, right? So beefsteak was cheap, but they meant all life was worth less. And when all life is worth less, you know, first through narrative, then through action, then any number of practices become imaginable. We talked to earlier in this conversation about the juxtaposition of the march on Washington with the murder in Jacksonville. We have to remember um, what was the response to people like Martin Luther King pushing us to know more, think harder, and do more? What was the response to you know NAACP leaders like Mike Mal- Medgar Evers or to um, Malcolm X? It was murder the resistance to a challenge um, that we can think of as intellectual that white supremacists feel is existential is violence. You know, I, I write in my own work that violence is as American as apple pie, that it's been yeah. used really from the founding of the nation in order to execute a social political order that has all of these downstream effects. You are working on a new book project that I think is also so important for helping us understand how we bring these things together, the meaning of state-sanctioned violence in all of its manifestations. Talk to us about this new book project. I'm working on a book that is about a young man's violent encounter with a police officer in 1980s San Diego, Sagan Penn, who is pulled over on a pretext. The story that we hear over and over that we had heard in the past, that we hear in the present, pulled over it on a pretext. The encounter quickly turns violent. Um, But in this case, Penn has a brown belt in Taekwondo. So... um, he defends himself until he mo- he, the moment that he thinks that the policeman is going to kill him. And then he disarms the policeman and shoots him with his own gun, wounding that policeman, killing another. The case goes to trial. And I guess, spoiler alert for my own book, right? But he's actually not convicted. He's not convicted because the defense with two policemen testifying make a convincing argument for self-defense. But his life falls apart, right? And so it's also thinking about the ways that state violence become other kinds of violence. You see his family affected by it. You see the community affected by it. It travels and it reverberates and it destroys. And I think we both need to think about the ways that white supremacy and state violence um, reconstitute themselves and one another over and over again. But we also need to think about the slow, corrosive violence that comes out of, we talk about spectacular moments of encounter, but we need to talk about the ways in which violence continues to do work um, and degrade our very foundations until, again, we all, not just Black people, but until we all are not okay. As you're talking about this, and I'm thinking, I've never heard of this case which to me is troubling, right? As someone who studies in this area, but also is thirsty to learn about the legacies of these efforts. It also has me realizing that our collective memory can be very short, that our collective focus and attention can be very fleeting. Like we move on to the next thing very quickly. Amid all of that, as an historian, I have to ask you, 
you know, where are the moments that give you hope? Because so much of this feels so heavy. It's so disturbing. It is shocking how quickly 2020 was supposed to be this great racial reckoning. And now we're back to people saying that we don't need to have centers and programs that address the lived experiences of people. Where are the moments that give you hope that, you know what, we can actually do better here? And not just back to it. Those voices are louder and more strident and more intense. They are a reaction to the possibility that emerged out of 2020. So the moments that give me hope are small, um, but it doesn't take a lot. I mean, again, to kind of speak in the language of the of the 60s activists, it doesn't take a very much light to disrupt darkness, right? I remember having one of my daughters when she was in elementary school, I spoke to her elementary school class and one little girl asked me, I have a question. Why is so much of human history tragic? And I was like, oh, Lord, 11 year old. <laughs> what do we do with that? It was a great dinner time yeah. combo. What happened in school today, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but what I said to her was sometimes it's tragic because those are the stories that get our attention. Right. Those are the ones that we tell because we think people need to know them because because we take for granted the less tragic of how we experience every day. And I was like, but also remember that even in the most tragic things, like if we're going to talk about slavery, which is what I was talking to her about, women named their children in spite of the fact that they weren't going to, they weren't certain they'd be able to keep them. They found their family as best they could when it was pulled apart afterwards. The resilience of the people who came before us, the intent certainty that they mattered, even when so much of the world told them that they did not, is a certain kind of light for me. It's also the case that in these stories of struggle, there are people behaving hideously and horribly. And then there are people who surprise you with their decency. Again, when all of the structures and contexts wouldn't lend them towards that. So I've been thinking a lot in the wake of the anniversary of Truman desegregating the military about both the blinding of World War II vet Isaac Woodard, who had a policeman put out his eyes with a with a baton, ghastly. It's one of the things that mobilized Truman's conscience, right? And Truman was an unlikely person, given his background, given his parents, to say, like, this is not what we as Americans do to each other, and I am going to use my power as the president to do better. The fact that he understood a responsibility to the people that was bigger than his own personal inclination is amazing to me. The fact that the federal judge in South Carolina who heard this case, Wadey's Waring, who's like Charleston Upper Crusty, who blew up his whole world in some ways by becoming an advocate for racial justice. Like that tells you that within everybody, every individual person, there's a capacity for really transcendent wonderfulness, even if we're living in and trafficking in the stories of pain and horror. Well, I'm so glad that you are able to share your work with us. It is disrupting the darkness in powerful ways, in ways that we need to remember that even in the face of tremendous pain, there is this beauty 
in the coming together, in the doing, in the remembering, and the honoring. Adrian Lynch Smith is Associate Professor of History and African and African American Studies at Duke University. She's author of Freedom Struggles, African Americans, and World War I. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, Professor Rua Benjamin talks about how inequality hurts everyone, even those who supposedly benefit from it. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look at movements for racial justice in the past and the present. In her most recent book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want, Ruha Benjamin remembers being suspended. Her grandmother picked her up from school that day, but rather than shame Ruha, her grandmother encouraged her and made her want to do better. Because her grandmother refused to punish her, Ruha describes her grandmother as, quote, an undercover abolitionist. Viral Justice argues that we all should do what Ruha's grandmother did, and that's push for social change through everyday acts. Dr. Ruha Benjamin is the Alexander Stewart 1886 Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. She's founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. Her book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want, is winner of the 2023 Stowe Prize. It's awarded by the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, recognizing a work that illuminates a critical social justice issue. Ruha, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. I want to take a step back to bring our our listeners into this. Talk to us a little bit about your work. You know, you are really working at the intersections of race, justice, technology, and helping us to think ahead as these developments happen. What's the background for you of why working in this space? Absolutely. So I I was trained as a sociologist and within the broader field of sociology, I gravitated towards looking at the social dimensions of science, technology and medicine. And I think partly what drew me to that is because those seemed like topics that were off limits, like they were in a bubble asocial, apolitical, removed from the messiness of everyday life. And that just made me want to burst the bubble (laughs) and bring them down to earth and to think about how um, all of the things that we might think as applied to the economy or education or the political realm actually also shape these fields that we consider to be neutral and objective. 
Your lab is named in honor of Ida B. Wells. Why the selection of Ida B. Wells and how does her life work sort of match with what you are doing of really deconstructing the myths about what it means to be a neutral field? You know, Ida B. Wells is one of these um, advocates and scholars who blended together um, a focus on what we might call the quantitative side, the statistics when it came to lynching and um, violence and the stories about that. She started out as a journalist. And so she brings together these two sides, the statistics and the stories to show how both of those can can uh, re reflect lies and falsehoods, but can also be wielded to tell the truth. And on a more personal note, um, Ida B. Wells Barnett's grandson, Troy Duster, was my dissertation advisor. So you are carrying on a legacy and a lineage of truth telling, of truth telling when it is very difficult, when the stakes are incredibly high, where if we're honest, the risk are incredibly high, especially for scholars who are working in areas where their presence isn't always known or appreciated. And so that background, that history, that lineage then shapes this book that you have, Viral Justice. Share with our listeners what that term means, viral justice. Viral justice is a lens for us to look at all of the seemingly small things around us in our communities, in our lives, that in some ways produces the grand scale problems that we face, but also can be points of entry to undo those and to seed something different in terms of justice and equity in our society. And so partly it's me learning from this virus, this coronavirus that had brought the world to a standstill that turned things upside down. And I thought about how if this microscopic entity could have these huge ramifications, could have these ripple effects in our lives. What if we channel that same microscopic level action in the direction of things that are life affirming, the things that we want more of rather than death, think about it as life affirming. And so the viral in viral justice is about this virus, not necessarily digital virality, which is what a lot of people think because they know my work on technology, but it's essentially a love letter to all of the people and things that don't get credit, don't get the shine, don't get the headlines and hashtags. So we can shine a light on how important those areas are for um, both the good and the bad and, and investing more in the things that we want. One of the concepts that's really central to love as you envision love is the concept of recognition of naming things, of calling a thing a thing, because it helps affirm what people are dealing with, those things that are seen and unseen, but also the ways that it can make it more difficult to move through a concept of love if we don't do that very basic thing of recognition. And so I want to lift here this concept in your book called weathering because it is so central to that recognition, particularly for communities that often suffer harm, but are overlooked and unheard. What is weathering and how does it factor into this broader theme of your book? 
you're absolutely right that names have power, naming has power. And so weathering is a concept developed by public health researcher Arlene Geronimus um, to name the phenomenon of that slow grinding stressors and oppressors that are in our environment, that get under our skin, into our bloodstreams, that affect our health over the long term. So again, what often gets attention is the kind of swift, violent death that then wraps us in a 24 hours news cycle and grabs our attention. But what about all the slow forms of death that we can't point to a certain event, but nevertheless take out many more people? And so in the same way that a structure or a building can be weathered by the environment, our bodies can be weathered over our lifetimes. Many of us have members of our family where we can bear witness to this process. But in the same way that we can name this phenomenon weathering that takes its toll, we also need a vocabulary and a language for the kinds of climates and environments that bring us to life, that give us joy, that actually vivify us. And so as scholars and researchers, we're really good at providing language to name what we don't want <laughs> and what's killing us. And what the book is trying to do is also balance that out by saying, so we can do that. What language, what words, what phenomenon do we want to name and give power so we can grow it and invest in it so that we can actually benefit from it? The other concept that you just mentioned is this theme of bearing witness. What does it mean to bear witness in the face of what often seems like negativity and, and overwhelming uncertainty, but to bear witness in a way that affirms love and the right to be? That's the first step, really. If we want to make any kind of change in the world, we have to look soberly and squarely at the ails, at the issues. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't have euphemisms to talk about what's killing us. We need to bear witness to it. And so one of the examples that I point to, again, calling out the research community, not even everyday folks, but even in the way that we misname phenomenon in our research. For example, we might say that um, because of their race, Black women have a higher um, infant mortality rate or maternal mortality rate. No, it's not because of their race. It's because of racism and sexism. And so part of it is where we misname things and call it the attributes of the individual rather than the social phenomenon that is actually creating the problem. That is part of misnaming and then taking us down a rabbit hole in which we're not actually producing knowledge that's useful to people. The analogy is that if I was walking through a landmine and something blew up and I lost an arm, I wouldn't say I lost an arm I, I, that I got blown up because I have an arm because I am Black, is because someone planted those landmines in my way. That is what caused the problem. So again, we have to use the power of naming and not misname phenomena and water them down, because then our solutions are going to be watered down as well. Who needs to bear witness? Thinking about this moment that we're in as a nation, as a global community, where does that responsibility lie to bear witness, to correctly name things, and to acknowledge that literally for some people, life and death lie in the naming and in the terms? On one hand, we all have a responsibility to bear witness. But I would say again to this analogy 
that those of us who have had to navigate an environment with these landmines planted in our way have had to learn from a very early age how to recognize and bear witness so we can stay alive. And so the question is, and I think this is where the, lar the, the bigger part of the responsibility is, those who seem to benefit from the current social order, from the way things currently are, who think that they are, quote, privileged in this context, they have an even greater responsibility to take off the rose-colored glasses, to put down the euphemisms, to stop sugarcoating and watering things down, and one, to listen to those who have had to, again, learn these literacies and this ab ability to read social reality accurately. And so it's about a matter of both bearing witness but it's also about a kind of intellectual humility that you might think you know, <laughs> but you need to, to learn and you need to, to take in the knowledge, both, both the research, but also the lived experiences of those in your communities, in your, in your um, workplaces, um, and take that in as part of your responsibility. One of the pieces in your book that I think may be difficult for some people to really acknowledge is that you say racism doesn't just impact marginalized communities or communities who have been in some ways exercised out of the polity, that it also affects white people, white people who think that they have privilege or who think that they are immune from some of these challenges, who see the disparities in the U.S. as an individual outcome as opposed to an institutional design. Give us a couple of areas or an area where you say this failure to really acknowledge this, to bear witness in this area, is why white folks suffer as well from racism. Inequality makes everyone sick. It Both the explicit targets of these unjust systems and those who are the seeming beneficiaries of the injustices and the inequalities. And so we can look at health data. We can look at educational data. Um, if you go state by state and you look at places where the gaps between the haves and have nots is wider, the so-called haves in those more unequal places are not faring that well. They're not faring as well as those who live in more equitable environments. Country by country, we have data again, where it shows that equality benefits everyone. And so you think about what does that look like? For example, I went to a boarding school in Southern Africa. One of the first things I noticed when I got off the plane was that the very small wealthy elite in that nation um, essentially lived behind walls and barbed wire fence. They had to put themselves in a prison in order to maintain that status quo. They had guards at the front. So they were trying to hoard wealth and resources. But in the meantime, they had to always be looking over their shoulder. And that has to be stressful. That has to create a kind of anxiety, get into your bloodstream where you know this, this is unjust, this arrangement is unjust. And your body tells a story about how you're internalizing that inequality. We can look at my colleague's work, um, Jonathan Metzl. He wrote a great book called Dying of Whiteness, did three case studies where looking at the investment in social policies and health and education, and the reason he found in interviewing people and, and collecting data that white Americans were not willing to invest in a robust social safety net was because they believed that black folks, the undeserving, were going to benefit from it. And so guess what? It wasn't there for them either when they needed it on their deathbeds. But 
were still opposed to quote unquote Obamacare because they believed black people were going to benefit from it. And so here again, it's that boomerang effect. Like you don't want it for someone else, but then when you need it, it's not there for you. Again, so we need to think about how both if inequality makes everyone sick, when we're talking about social justice and equity, this is not charity work. This is not work that we're doing for other people. You need to do it for yourself, for your own well-being, both your sense of humanity and morality, but also just the life and death stakes of living in an inequitable environment. It's not good for your health, much less the health of those who, who are disadvantaged, more explicitly disadvantaged. And so I think that shift where we think about solidarity instead of charity, that we're in this together, that our, our fates are linked um, I think that's a much uh, more sustainable and honest approach to this work than thinking about helping the underserved. I watched the Republican debate and I kept hearing this sort of small town values, what happens in small towns. And I think that kind of myth is the very thing that you're talking about, because then it doesn't look at the inability to access health care in rural communities. It doesn't look at the disproportionate number of women who suffer under domestic violence in these situations because the framing and the trope is that's an urban problem. That's an inner city problem. And it's literally killing all of us because women and those who mother can't have access to the kind of quality care. Given that, we know that racism makes it worse for all of us. What do we do about that, right? That gap between what we know, what we feel physically in our bodies and our seeming inability to move past that. It's a million dollar question, honestly. And in my view, in every way that the oppressive and racist status quo is produced in every dimension, that is as that is uh, in to think about how to undo it and to create something different. So whether we acknowledge that the way that our school system is set up. We have an apartheid-like school system in terms of resource allocation, where predominantly white schools receive something on the order of $25 billion more than schools with predominantly Black and Latinx students. And so we think about the school budgets, we think about the curricula, which is a huge battlefield right now. So if we understand that that is part of producing the miseducation and the lies that then seep into our culture, we recognize, okay, that is... Uh, that is a front line to begin to undo it and challenge it. Similarly with our healthcare system, if we understand that when we're at our most vulnerable, we're going into these buildings and interacting with people that really have a disdain for their own patients, <laughs> that this is another front line that we have to think about what is medical school education need to include beyond the technical, what is the social and humanistic dimension that has to be incorporated into nursing and into medical training? And so again, another front line. If we think about technologies, we started the conversation, think about how they continue to encode and reproduce these very phenomenon, then, then in my view, we have to think about the training of the next generation of technologists. What has to go into that? What needs to be part of their worldview and their consideration as they build that toolkit? And so for the listeners, you know, there's not one formula. There's no magic bullet. We have to think about our own backyard. What is our sphere of influence? What area for a stay-at-home parent? In my view, that is a ground zero for the reproduction of the problems 
or the place that we start to reimagine on the the playground, right? On in the in the sandbox because that's where our values first start to become formed and transmitted. So there's no area that's unimportant. There's no nothing that we can do that's too small. We have inherited centuries of lies and and inequities, but guess what? We don't have to carry on that inheritance. We don't have to carry on those patterns. We can make breaks. We talk about intergenerational trauma. Guess what? Intergenerational healing is a thing. <laughs> so again, naming what we want to do. And then I think linking arms with people around us who are also committed to breaking with this old order and creating something that is life-affirming and just and joyful, not trying to do it alone. This is not entrepreneurial work where I'm just going to create an app for this or a new business for this. It's community-based, it's grassroots, and there are people in your own locales that are passionate and are energetic to do this, so linking arms with those around you. That was Ruha Benjamin, author of Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. It's this year's recipient of the Stowe Prize. Coming up, more with Ruha Benjamin. She says that when people try to restrict education, we need to ask what they're really afraid of. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking at how people demand racial justice in the United States. We continue our conversation with Dr. Ruha Benjamin. She's winner of this year's Stowe Prize for her book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. I've been thinking about the ways in which Black people can be targeted in this country. And so I asked Ruha to talk about an example from her book. This one is from the North Miami Beach Police Department. A few years ago, um, these images started circulating online and they showed a mugshots of uh, young black men with bullet holes through the mugshots. And we learned that the sister of one of these young men who was in the National Guard went to this, um, this shooting range and saw her brother's face in the trash with this bullet hole. And so she brought it to the media's attention. She, um, she you know, started um, circulating it. And what we learned is that these were the faces that North Miami PD was practicing on before they hit the streets. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise then that we see that these very same young men, the same demographic are often the, the, the target of the majority of police violence and brutality. If you're practicing on it, that's who you're primed and socialized to associate with danger and with harm. And therefore, you're more trigger happy and somehow magically more, um, you know, you, you have more self-control when the, it's other demographics. So it's not that you can't do it, is <laughs> that it's selectively applied. But in this case, what I find really heartening is that when the images of these young men started circulating, members of the community um, started to rise up and they started to mobilize. And one group in particular, clergy in Miami, majority white clergy went online and they put their own faces there and they created the hashtag use me instead as a way to call out the hypocrisy and harm associated with this everyday practicing of anti-Blackness. And for me, that's a reminder. Again, it's a bearing witness. It's calling out, you know, the fact that they know this is wrong. And that in this case, one of the questions that I raise in the book 
is when we're presented with this particular scenario, is our um, is the solution simply to diversify the faces that police use for target practice, uh, equal opportunity um, oppression, or is it to question the practice at its root? And so I think this particular line of questioning applies to many areas of our, our lives and our work is, are we just trying to diversify unjust systems or do we want to uproot them and create something new? Again, plantations were very diverse. Let's talk about a key area that we have been told for generations is the area that can give us the best opportunity to make those kinds of changes. And that is the area of education which right now has become this battlefield from which books people can read and have access to, to who can be in the classroom, to even how people just exist in their being. Why do you think this idea of the meritocracy of education being the great equalizer that can undo all of these harms that you mentioned? Why do you see that as a dangerous myth? You know, part of it is it's a myth. The meritocracy is a myth that forces us to erase centuries of domination and inequality. It requires us to have an ahistorical approach to social reality. Um, but the fact that education is a battlefield is also, in some ways, a great wake up call that ideas matter. You know, sometimes those of us who work in academia or work, you know, in the education system, you know, there's like this idea that this is not the real world. The real world is out there and we're just we're just working in the realm of ideas. But if these ideas weren't so powerful and dangerous, would we be having the 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 uprisings around the curriculum that we see? If books were just books, <laughs> you know, um, then would people be battling over over um, banning them? And so, part of the the question, I think, as a parent, um, as communities, let's say, as as you know, councils that are overseeing this, is we should ask, what are what are people so scared of? What is the fear? animating this? Why is it so threatening to learn the truth about our history and our society? As you and I are having this conversation, there are families in Jacksonville, Florida, who are preparing to bury their loved ones, who were targeted and executed. Words matter, so I want to be intentional about using those words. Targeted and executed in a store by a white yes. supremacists who was able to buy guns. When we yes. see those real life practical implications of how yeah. ignorance can manifest into harm, we think about growing the world that we yeah. want. What do you say as someone who is an yeah. educator who works in these yeah. spaces and who sees historically what has happened when we haven't yeah. addressed it? The first thing that I think and I say um, is again, echoing a, a prior era and thinking about a question in the wake of the death of civil rights activist Jimmy Lee Jackson, um, when uh, Reverend Martin Luther King asked, posed the question in an interview, um, how many fingers were on that trigger that killed Jackson? And so in the case of our, of our, um, our kin in Florida, we are talking about not one lone wolf, as the narrative often goes, one isolated incident. We're talking about an attached incident. 
We're talking about all the fingers on that trigger, um, the, both the politicians, both you know the people who are who are in, engaged in the banning of of African American studies um, in the curriculum. Again, thinking about the connection between ideas and history and knowledge and the actions that people take. And so my concern is that when these kinds of horrific crimes and incidents um, capture our national imagination, it becomes easy to say, see, that's the real racism. That's that's the problem without making the connection to all of the other fingers on that trigger. In the same way, though, again, getting back to viral justice, if there are a lot of invisible fingers on that trigger that leads to this incident or this this horrific crime. Similarly, when it comes to bringing more life into the world and joy and justice in the world, it requires a lot of fingers <laughs> to do that work, not just the in few individuals that, you know, get all the attention, but it's all of the things behind the scenes that leads to this larger transformation. And so in, in what I'm saying is that in the same way that we can trace the microscopic, the hidden dimensions of something we don't want, which is racist violence, the same way we need to foster and seed and water and grow all of the life-affirming processes that can lead to major transformations and the kind of world that we want. As we come to the close of our time together, I want us to talk about those things that we want, life, joy, and justice. What is it that brings you joy? I think part of why I am in the profession that I am is that I get to hang out with 18 to 22 year olds um, that really don't have the luxury to give up. They have their whole lives ahead of them. And so part of it is a stubborn hopefulness that I get to be in this environment with people who are, who are, you know, don't, you know, have the 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 luxury to be completely cynical and they're so part of it is working and training the next generation of thinkers and doers and artists and technologists and i think certainly that's something that fuels my everyday um, energy and my hopefulness um, as i go forward Rua Benjamin is the Alexander Stewart 1886 Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Her latest book is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. It is the 2023 Stowe Prize winner. Congratulations again, and thank you so much for joining us. A true honor. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.